Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. In this episode, I'm talking to Ella King about her literary novel, Bad Fruit. Ella is a Singaporean novelist living in Greenwich. She is a graduate of Faber Academy's novel writing programme and an award-winning writer who has worked as a corporate lawyer and for anti-human trafficking and domestic violence charities. In this episode, we discuss how boredom during chemotherapy inspired Ella to write again exploring toxic family relationships and generational trauma, and how competition success gave her confidence to query agents. But first, here's Ella with an excerpt from Bad Fruit. The kind of juice Mama likes is juice past its use-by date. She likes the fizz in it, the sour tang. I would have been fine with this if she kept it to herself, but Mama can't be alone in anything, and with the juice... Someone has to taste it to make sure it hovers in that sliver of perfection between expired and putrid. Each night I stare into the plug hole, my chrome oracle, and ask the same question. Is it better to like expired juice or not? Some days I wish I liked it, just to make up for the amount of gagging I do. On days when I'm stronger, I'm pleased I don't. My body, succumbed to this madness for so long, has drawn a line in the sand. To reduce my nightly swills at the kitchen sink, I experimented extensively with the juice. I was quite methodical about it, scribbling down with scientific precision what Mama considered her perfect drink to be. Orange juice, two days. Blood orange juice, three days. Grape juice, a surprising five days after it's used by date. Once I established this, I tried freezing it. But defrosting was a problem. It never defrosted to the right temperature, too warm or too icy. Mama would take one sip, look at me as if I'd betrayed her, and throw it down the sink. Then I discovered a bigger problem. Even with juice the right number of days off, there was no guarantee Mama would be happy with it unless I tasted it. She always seemed to know if I hadn't. I wondered if she could smell the absence of acid on my breath when I gave her the untasted glass, or if there was just something about me hating it that made it taste better. So here I am again, standing at the fridge door, my tongue clinging to the roof of my mouth. Blood orange juice, three days off. I try it, gag, and spit it down the plug hole. Perfect. Hi Ella, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, Bad Fruit. Thanks, Chloe. Thanks so much for having me. It's so nice to meet you on Zoom and yeah, just to chat. So can you start by telling us what Bad Fruit's about? Yeah. So Bad Fruit follows 17-year-old Lily um, in her last weeks of um, her summer holiday before university. Um, She's the youngest of three and she lives with her volatile mother May and her quiet father Charlie. Um, When May suspects Charlie of having an affair, Lily knows exactly how to manage her mother as she prepares her a glass of perfectly spoiled orange juice. And as her family starts to unravel, Lily begins to have these strange flashbacks, flashbacks that she doesn't 
necessarily recognize as hers and that aren't her memories. The flashbacks compel Lily to unravel the harrowing history that has always cast a shadow on her mother and the shattering secrets at the center of her own childhood. And I read that the kind of early inspiration for the novel came from, well, part was partly inspired by stories that your grandmother told you. Can you mm. tell us kind of how this novel began? Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting question because it never really occurred to me at the time um, that my grandmother was an incredible storyteller. But now when I look back on it, it's just so obvious to me that she was. Um, so my grandmother looked after me while my parents were at work um, and she she really filled my childhood with drawing and singing. She had this amazing uh, velvety voice that my, my dad used to say, you know, it belongs to a, a newsreader or something. But, you know, she it, she just she would tell me these incredible stories about her own childhood um, these escapades on the banks of the West Lake and um, and just the times that she'd played hooky. Um, and I think when you're just brought up on stories, it becomes not just part of your childhood, um, but also part of the way you think and part of the way you communicate. Um, so it's no surprise that I actually always wanted to write a novel. Um, my first idea was actually the stories my grandmother told me about her childhood and her experience during the Japanese occupation of China. And there's a little glimmer of this in Bad Fruit in the flashbacks. There's just the smallest shadow of, of World War II that's happened. But I actually ended up cutting a lot of this, even though it had been the backbone of the original novel that I wrote. And of course, this novel is a very dark novel and um, it, it does explore this kind of very, well, very toxic family relationships I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the meaning and the significance of the title of the novel Bad Fruit yeah um I'm actually really bad at writing titles <laughs> um and my um my lovely agent Helly had this we communicate over whatsapp and um we had this basically this title off and she, we just sent each other loads of titles and I think ultimately we ended up with with bad fruit but it, it's something that I've really come to appreciate because I guess on a literal level there is some actual bad fruit in the novel um there's the spoiled orange juice that Lily has been trained to taste for her mother there's fruit rotting in a bowl um when Lily isn't there to throw it out but I think it also plays on the saying that an apple doesn't fall for far from the tree which when you think about it is a pretty harsh assertion that a child is just as bad as their parents. Um, and I think it goes to the generational aspects of the novel, like can Lily and her siblings break free from the toxicity of their mother May? Can May break free from her own traumatic childhood? And who at the end, of, at the close of the novel is ultimately the bad fruit? So I think it, it, it plays on a lot of different um, themes and aspects of the novel. There were so many parts in this novel where I really felt like it got totally under my skin. And actually the the whole idea of this kind of spoilt juice and, mm. and the tasting it was just, oh, just really kind of had that kind of queasy feeling reading it. What was it like to write those kind of, um, I guess it's almost playing with the, a kind of horror element to, to explore yeah. kind of unnerving edge to this food and this this kind of spoiled food. I don't think I don't think I ever saw it as horror until I think I've I've read a ton of reviews which have mentioned that element. And frankly for a writer, these scenes are gems because <laughs> they're they're just really fun to write. Um and I think as a writer, it, it, for me, it's harder to write the scenes in between that than those pivotal, visceral scenes. Mm. Um, so I found them quite fun. Do you think you're naturally someone who enjoys writing the darker side of kind of human nature then? Oh, definitely, Chloe. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm slightly envious of 
um, people who write romance or just other kind of uplet because I just don't I just don't know how they do it and I really I really want to write that kind of stuff and I enjoy reading it but it's just it's never been something that I could do I, I spoke to my husband recently about my second book and I told him what it was about and he just looked at me and just said I, why is it always so awful <laughs> <laughs> just is <laughs> don't worry I've had those similar conversations before and I think I, I totally relate it's that thing of maybe or you just enjoy that side of it and it's yeah it's fun to to play with that on the page I think yeah definitely definitely I wondered as we're on the subject of food if you could talk a little mm. bit more about the food references in the novel because it plays quite an emotional role and like ties together their family when it's kind of meal preparation and buying these uh, particular mm. dishes and these particular uh, delicacies. So can you talk a little bit about your use of food and cooking in the novel? Yeah, I think um, I think for me, food is very aspirational because I, I really can't cook. Um, but I love food and I love Singaporean food, especially Paranankan food. So my, my father's family is actually Paranankan. Um, and I would spend these summers in Singapore with my cousins. Um, and a few years back, while I, uh, I'd ha- I, I had started Bad Fruit at the time, I visited Singapore and Malaysia again um, with the same cousins that I'd grown up with. And that really resurrected my love of food. Um, I really wanted to describe the taste and the textures, the broths and the curries and the biscuits. And I also think food plays such an important role in Asian culture. It's a way of expressing love and care. Um, but in the novel, the main character, Lily, who's cooking for her mother, um, it, it the food becomes really emblematic of these terrible role reversals that happen and that are allowed to occur in the family. So daughters serving mothers, daughters lavish, lavishing care on their mothers. Um, and as Lily starts to confront who her mother really is and the secrets she's been keeping, um, what food represents to her starts to change. So instead of reflecting Lily's love and care, it begins to mirror Lily's growing rage at her role in the family and her first attempts at control um, as she starts to turn the table on her mother's food sensitivities, which for so long have dominated her. Mm, It's a real kind of element of control in their relationship and we're going to be careful in this chat about kind of not giving away too much but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, Lily and May's relationship because it's so central tell us about what it's like at the start of the novel where do we where do we meet them what is what is their dynamic like at the beginning yeah um yeah so the novel opens with May telling Lily that her father Charlie has been sending these love poems to Lily's sister-in-law. But even from the start, there's something very strange about the dynamic. Um, I think the first thing is that Lily isn't shocked or appalled at all by what her father's been up to because she's already known. She's known for months, all of the siblings have known, and she just hasn't told her mother. So you instantly get a sense that there are secrets in the family. There are these hidden fissures and complex allegiances um second I think Lily's focus is less on her father's transgressions and more on her mother's reaction how how to calm her down what she might do next and I think that hints at the strangeness of Lily's role in the family how she's effectively shouldering the emotional burden of her mother with no support from her siblings or her father Mm. May is such an interesting character and and one that I think might well may divide readers opinions and I definitely think will provoke strong reactions from readers certainly as we move towards the ending but I was wondering how you feel about her as the writer Mm. and whether those kind of complexities were a challenge maybe you had an idea of how you wanted people to feel about her what was that like to kind of invent her yeah it's such a great question how do I feel about her um on the one hand, she's obviously the clear antagonist of the novel. Um, superficially, she is 
the poster child of female success. She's a first-generation immigrant who's become a shark in the financial world. She's fierce. She's ambitious. She wears pristine clothes and makeup. But at home, she's volatile and violent and a narcissist who makes devastating demands on her family, particularly on Lily, who is forced to engage in these really disturbing practices to please her mother. So the juice that we mentioned, but also cooking and eliminating how white she looks through makeup and contact lenses, because Lily is actually um, multiracial. Her father is her father is white. Um, but on the other hand, I guess one of the reasons I was drawn to write a character like May is because in my work with domestic abuse charities, I've experienced a lot of Mays, these deeply damaged and damaging adults whose biting criticism and outbursts of violence are actually rooted in their own childhood, um, who don't know how to parent because they themselves were never parented. And when you actually know these stories, you kind of realize how simplistic our concepts are of good and bad and innocent and guilty. And while you you can't excuse their actions, it's really hard not to feel deep compassion and sorrow for their brokenness. So I, I think what I wanted to do was to explore that other side of quite an abusive person um, and to look into the reasons why they were like that. Did you feel you had to do a lot of work kind of personally to get yourself in that mindset to write her as a fully kind of rounded character? I actually didn't because I I was aware of so many people that were actually like her. And I guess it was my purpose going into writing Bad Fruit that I, I really wanted to explore that side of things, which I didn't feel was really reflected in media representations or in fiction or in um, in TV. So to that extent, because that was the purpose of why I wanted to write it, I didn't, I, I and I was familiar with it. I, it, it didn't feel very hard for me. I think it feels more shocking to readers, um, but I think that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> So you had this kind of clear sense of the themes you wanted to explore. And as we mentioned, it's kind of looking at uh, sort of toxic family relationships and trauma. Mm. Did you kind of approach the novel with a, a clear sense of the kind of plot direction or where you wanted to go with it? Did you, were there other things, the other themes, the other themes emerged that you hadn't expected to write about that when you were writing, they kind of emerged from the story you were telling? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I mean, I don't know, um, I don't know what you are like as a writer, but I feel like for me, my writing is very theme-led. Um, and the theme of generational trauma was probably the clearest aspect of the novel, um, more than plot or character or any of the writing itself. And that's something that actually just stayed constant in the face of different versions and edits and actually completely just completely different books um and I think for me generational trauma is a really important issue because um I still remember when I started thinking about it and I was um I was working with an anti-human trafficking charity in Cambodia um and we were outside a school where 50% of the children were being sold by their parents into um, into um, I mean they were being sold for sex and I and I just really couldn't believe it um, and I I remember asking the charity why this was happening um, and just really wanting to interrogate it and their their answer was generational trauma I mean the parents of these children had themselves witnessed atrocities during the Cambodian genocide and they really didn't think that what they were doing was really that bad compared to what they'd been through. And they'd basically been desensitized to their own trauma and therefore to the trauma that they were inflicting on their children. Um, 
and after that I I just began to really notice generational trauma and its causes and how it warps a family but also questions about whether it's possible to break free from generational trauma and the relationship between trauma and responsibility um and I just find it really interesting when readers have very visceral reactions to May, but they have this outpouring of sympathy for Lily when actually in the novel, you're only seeing Lily as a child and actually the tide is very much against her and without significant intervention and a willingness to confront her own trauma. She is destined to turn out like May. So for me, just I really wanted to capture all these issues and these complexities in Bad Fruit. And yeah, I think that's what that's what kind of pulled me through mm. the drafting of the novel. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that there were kind of other versions of this novel which explored yeah. the same things, but just had a would you say that the story was completely different or were there elements that have always kind of carried through from draft to draft? Um I think it was it was completely different. It was completely different. And I think I, as with, <laughs> with most writers, I tried to kind of recycle bits and, and just hope that they fitted into a new narrative and a new plot. And, and sometimes they just didn't. But, um, but yeah, the themes remain, remain constant. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mm -hmm. And were those decisions about what stay, what go, and what's working, ones that you made, or were they kind of, I know you've had to kind of um, done courses and and done Mm. um, development on your writing, but are you do you think you're good at looking at your work kind of with a distance and seeing what's working and what's not I no I think I'm very bad at that (laughs) I think I've got better at it um and I think I've got better at trusting um other people about it um I think when I first signed with my agent Helly um she would make these suggestions and I would just push against them all the time. <laughs> now I've learned that actually she, she, she's almost always right <laughs> <laughs> because it just takes me a while to kind of get round a different concept or a different idea. Mm. 
Um, so I think it's part of my own learning that actually sometimes my focus can be like very, very detailed, whereas actually it's very helpful to have um, someone who's looking at the novel from um, from more of an overall perspective. Um, and I, I think I didn't know going into writing novels how collaborative it can be and how how much energy um, that can generate and how exciting that is to have someone who really, really loves your work but also really wants to make it the best it can be. Mm. Um, and that's really exciting. Yeah. I It's interesting, isn't it, because I'm, I've been to events and, and talks and a lot of kind of wannabe or aspiring writers or people who've just started are really worried about that aspect of it and um, I've had questions at events where someone said you know um, but but what if your agent or your editor wants you to change something and you don't want to change it and I really don't see it like that I see it in the same vein as you in that it's so enjoyable to have someone who is just as enthusiastic and passionate as you in making this book better Um, but having that other viewpoint and that other perspective and say why don't we try this or have you thought about this or even interrogating what you've actually Mm. written just makes I I find that the fun bit like that's the that's the best bit um I I don't find it worrying or I don't feel like it's diluting kind of my voice because at the end of the day no. you're the one that's got to put the work in you're the one that's got yeah. to write it yeah I am um, I'm just remembering my editor Charlotte um gave me a, a weather edit um and she said because the weather had been I mean the weather was just random it just depended on what I wanted to write <laughs> you know completely random and um Charlotte said you should Um, think about making it hotter during the summer as the novel progresses and it was such a pain to do a weather edit because I had to just go through the whole novel after I'd done all my other edits and change the weather and it it is a really really annoying thing to have to do but um, I think it's really it it's really added to the novel it's it's just added another layer of um it's it's almost adding another symbol that reflects just this really um this kind of crucible feeling of of the summer mm. um and all these decisions coming to the fore and all these um conflicts um so yeah, I, sometimes you just in in the moment you might hate an edit and then look back on it and think, no, that that really works. Yeah, like you say, there's often that initial feeling of why are you making me do this, and then about a week later, you realise that everything they've said is right, and yeah, you have to yeah. you know suck it up and and do the work. Yeah, I, I wondered whether talking about this kind of the the weather and the intensity of it did that help you with the kind of the building of the tension because it does I mean I think your novel has been described as a thriller although mm. I would say it's it's much more on the the literary side of of what a thriller could be um but it definitely has this building of tension um and as I said it really got right under my skin because you're not always sure where exactly it's going to go um did you were you conscious of kind of building this tension or was that something again that kind of came later as you were working on the edits of it I think the intense feeling of the novel was definitely intentional because I wanted to explore a highly dysfunctional and toxic family where roles are reversed and where children are forced to look after parents and where parents are acting out in ways that they don't fully understand and I think this slippage of boundaries this emotional enmeshment um, always feels uncomfortable when it's laid bare. Um, but it's interesting what you were saying about the thriller side of it because um, the mystery of Lily's flashbacks um, was actually a product of a much later edit. <laughs> so in the original uh, version of the novel, the flashbacks have a magical realist explanation. Um, but as I thought more deeply about it um, and what I wanted to achieve, I decided that it was really important to try and ground 
the flashbacks in reality and for there to be a psychological explanation. Um, I don't want to spoil why Lily is experiencing these flashbacks, but for me, if that's the element that edges the novel into the thriller space, it's it's because I wanted to be faithful to the reality of trauma as I understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting because I, I also think that readers, readers themselves are, are very divided about whether it's a thriller or not. There are some Goodreads reviews that say, this is not a thriller. Um, and 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 I, I get that there's no there's there's no one who there's no one who dies <laughs> there's no there's no big death in the first chapter um but you know I I like reading pacey mysterious books so I think mm. those are the elements that I wanted to add into it yeah I think genre conventions are difficult particularly when you're the writer and you don't necessarily you don't necessarily set out to write a particular genre of novel and mm. then um it's not often your decision where it fits in in the bookshop you know so yeah. and some books don't easily slide into a particular category um and I think I I, I personally think like don't don't worry about it let, yeah. let the publishing team decide where exactly. it's going to <laughs> so I'd love to talk a little bit more about your writing process for this book and just and in more more general terms how do you go then from an idea to a bigger project? And do you have a kind of particular process or, or routine? Oh, Clary, I have some <laughs> writing confessions for you. Um, <laughs> the first is I don't plot. And I know that's really bad. And I remember, oh, I, I went back to Faber and had a chat to um, some of the um, the pupils there. And uh, the tutor said, "Like, don't don't say that to them <laughs> because <laughs> it just flies in the in in the face of all writing convention." And I know that that's true. And I'm an aspirational plotter, and I've read a lot of books to try and get myself to plot. Um, and I acknowledge that it's more efficient, and I want to be able to write like that. But I really can't do it. Um, and in September, I went to a crime festival and I met Lisa Jewell and she said that she didn't plot either. And then I felt just so much relief that I didn't, <laughs> that I was in good company because I felt very alone in my uh, my inability to plot. Um, but yeah, my other, my other writing confession is that I don't really have a routine right now, but I feel like that's, that's okay because I have um, a six-year-old daughter and a five-month-old daughter. And so I just try and write whenever my baby naps and that's completely random. But I do try and write every evening. And I think there's there's an idea of an author as someone in a cafe wearing a big jumper having quite a nice time, but it is actually pretty hard to find the time to do it. And I just, I end up throwing myself on the nearest bench, even if it's a bus stop or three degrees, um, just to try and get something down. Um, but I find that, you know, as long as I am doing something on the book every day, um, my mind just ends up processing a lot of issues. Like I end up sorting out flaws in my plot and panning characters out. Um, as long as I'm doing something, I feel like it it, it will always come. So. Yeah, I'm probably not the best person <laughs> for anyone to speak model to themselves so, after. I speak to so many writers that say that they're not a planner. Um, and it seems like there's such a, a massive divide between yeah. those who are using spreadsheets and post-it notes and like so many notes and then other people who just write and it just happens. And then yeah. they go back and do maybe seven drafts because they didn't realize what the story was until draft number five or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I do that. I, do that. <laughs> I, I know, I know it's not efficient, but also I also think it's, it's worse if you are a thriller writer, because obviously there are these points of suspense and plot, but also sometimes it's much easier to go back and tweak them and make it work mm. rather than trying to think about it from the beginning and sort yeah. it out. I don't know. 
I think there's an element for everyone, even those who plan, because I would put myself down as more of a planner, where you do go completely off plan because um, I always used to think it was ridiculous when writers would say that characters kind of did their own thing and spoke to them. But honestly, I think it does happen at times, particularly in dialogue, I find. Um, oh. But I think we all have bad habits. My bad habit, which I I went, did a... Um, I did an event and my, one of my uh, my writing tutor from Fable was sitting in the audience and I could see he was like, what, what are you saying? Why are you saying this? Because I said, which is my bad habit, of I like to go back and tweak chapters after I've written them. Instead of carrying on and just plowing through to the end, I will, you know, go back and prettify a chapter because I really struggle to just let it be as it is and be horrible as a first draft. So we've, we've all got bad habits. <laughs> I'm completely the same. I, I'm i doing that with my second book right now. I've done a horrific draft, and rather than going through it properly, I'm just obsessing about chapter three. It's always chapter three. Um, and I keep telling myself that it's because it's really important to get the beginning right, otherwise mm. the rest of it won't come. But actually, it's just because I really just quite like an edit. <laughs> I, I'm I'm with you I'm definitely someone who prefers editing to doing the first draft I was just oh, no it's horrible I know, I know. <laughs> so you started well I read that you started kind of having um ideas or and writing during your maternity leave mm. and you were accepted onto the Faber Academy's writing a novel course which I also did and then mm. you struggled a little bit because you were trying to fit your writing back into your life um, and then it wasn't until you were having chemo for cancer that you began mm-hmm. pursuing writing as a career again. So can you tell us how your, how you basically your journey to publication? So how did you end up with a book deal? Right. Yeah. Um, it's been a bumpy one. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I'd always wanted to write, but I wasn't really serious about it until I was on maternity leave with my first daughter. Um, and I think it's such an interesting time because I feel like a kind of shifting of priorities happened when I had her because there's this whole other person that you love really intensely. And it just forced me to confront what I really wanted because it had to be worth spending the time away from her. And that's when I came back to wanting to write a novel. So I, I applied and went for the Faber Academy course. Um, but when the, the course ended and the structure fell away and I was back at work again, um, I really struggled to prioritize my writing um, with childcare and, and my job. And it also didn't help that I am an obsessive editor. <laughs> so <laughs> left to my own devices, it took me about three years to get to chapter six. I know that's really bad. Um, and then and then what happened was I tried for another baby and instead got a rare form of cancer, which is actually highly treatable with chemo. Um, and chemo chemo is, is is awful, obviously. There are the hospital trips and um, the hair loss and the nausea, but actually more than anything, chemo is very boring. Um, and there's only so long you can watch Netflix. And I hate being un- unproductive. And I couldn't write because I felt so ill. So um, I started thinking, what could I do with the writing that I had, i.e. my six chapters? <laughs> um, so I just decided to use them to apply for short story competitions and novel competitions. And by the time I'd finished chemo, I'd got some agent interest, um, including from my agent, Helly, who, um, who'd actually liked bad fruit after Faber Academy but I just had never sent her anything I feel like I'm a really bad model for for how to get a a novel published but there you go um so yeah so Helly and I worked on the novel together and uh and then we sold it to HarperCollins um which was amazing um and then I actually did that that big edit that I was talking to you about where I changed um the explanation of the flashbacks um I actually wanted to do that edit before we sold it in the US um so yeah it's interesting because the the book that sold to HarperCollins in the UK is actually different from the book that sold 
into the US. And then after we sold into the US, HarperCollins were happy to kind of um, for the for the books to to be the same because mm-hmm. they they actually liked the psychological explanation. Um, yeah, so it's been it's been pretty up and down. Um, but in retrospect, I actually wouldn't change any of it because I think if I actually hadn't if I hadn't had a cancer or, or had chemo, I probably would still be maybe on chapter nine right now like <laughs> I wouldn't have sent anything out um so I kind of needed that impetus and that mm. that level of unproductivity to force myself to actually do something with my novel what kind of period of time we're we talking how long did that kind of take place um the 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 editing or the actual the whole like the whole from thing. your of your kind of your six chapters that took you however long till the book deal can you remember yeah um so so when I signed with Heli I signed with only three chapters I actually gave her maybe five chapters and then I wasn't happy with chapter six so I didn't <laughs> um but so I was I was very lucky because um I actually didn't have a full manuscript um and then I was happily tinkering with it with some help from her and she said that she would like to aim for I think it was I think it's the Frankfurt book fair mm-hmm. um and then I freaked out and wrote it in a month which is just mad it's mad and it, I ended <laughs> up sending her a chapter a day and then she would look at it edit it and send it back to me Wow. And I just carried on. I think I still missed Frankfurt because I still had to put more edits in, but I did actually finish it in a month. (laughs) (laughs) I guess doing it like that made you, it forced you to get rid of your bad habits. Yes. Yes. It it definitely did. And I think, I think as well, because I had actually spent so long thinking about it, it was, it was all in there. I didn't need to do that much research um so that was that was good and then when I sold it to Hub Collins we probably did about six months worth of edits because which actually were, were more led by me than them because I wanted to make that that edit um so yeah the whole process from kind of signing with a publisher to to publication does does take a fair amount of time which I, I think a lot of people don't don't see so one thing I was going to ask you and I wondered whether this related to how you met your agent is that mm. I know you've won quite a few competitions and had several development opportunities with your writing so what kind of impact did they have on on your kind of craft and your career um I think they they were pretty instrumental to kickstarting my writing career. I think I think the first thing was they just gave me this incredible boost of confidence because I think writing can be very cerebral and quite lonely and there are only so many times that you can talk to your partner and friends about characters that basically don't exist. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I'm sure like so many people we experience imposter syndrome and self-doubt and so it was really incredible to receive that external validation that my writing was meaningful um but the other thing was that it obviously propelled me to the attention of some incredible agents um and that was really helpful as well because you know that that's the first that's the first foot through the door really mm. yeah so is that how you met your agent through winning Um, yeah so um so I don't know if Faber Academy was the same for you as it was for me because apparently now they don't do this but um when I did Faber Academy one of the things that they did was they did a reading at the end of the course yeah we had that and oh you had that now it's completely changed um but you basically read an extract to a room full of agents um and uh, I don't think Heli was there at, at the time, but she had read the anthology mm. and she had contacted me after the anthology. Um, 
and asked me to read, asked if she could read some more, which I didn't send her because I hadn't written anything more, which is pretty bad. Um, <laughs> so, um, so when I actually, a few years later, when I won, um, when I won a competition, it wasn't with her, but, um, but it basically made me think, oh, actually maybe I should start sending this out to my dream list of agents mm. because, um, because there was already interest in it. And, um, and then that led me to reconnecting with Heli, um, and to, yeah. And to just really thinking about which agent would be, um, would be the best for the novel, what their ideas and visions were. Um, but more importantly, who I thought I would get on with, mm. um, and I think that's really, really important going in because um, agents are really going to hold your hand through the mm. ups and the downs. Um, and they just have to be someone that you really, you really respect and you really like and you really get on with. Definitely. So is there anything you know now that you're a published author that you wish you'd known right at the start of your journey? Um, yeah, I think I think that's a really good question. Um so much luck is involved in the journey to publications as I'm sure you'll you'll be aware as well um and there are so many different elements which are completely out of your control like you know what agents and editors tastes are what the different genres are the market influences even politics I think at the time that we were thinking of selling it into the U.S. um it was it was kind of election time in in the US it was just really it was just too much political uncertainty to sell a book because the country was just absorbed with other things um and it's really easy to be buffeted by the ups and downs and I think what I tell myself is to not worry as much and to just have confidence about what I'm writing about and why I'm writing and that you know it's unique to me and um, no one can replicate it and there's definitely times when I lost faith in in myself and in the book and thought that it wasn't going to work and that no one would be interested and I think if I had let those thoughts overtake me I wouldn't have got it published mm. um, so I think that's really important I guess another thing that I'm learning now um, which I have to tell myself constantly is to kind of stop being so book one-ish about book two <laughs> Which you must you must get as well. Well, um, well, explain what you mean by that then. Well, because with book one, I just had there was no pressure on it. I had endless amounts of time to write it, um, and I could do a three year edit on six chapters and make it just exactly how I wanted. Um, and with book two, um, it's it's really interesting because I've. Uh, I have a I have a two book deal, so I'm you know, supposed to be delivering this book, but also, you know, HarperCollins has bought book two, and my editor Charlotte, who's amazing, it, it, you know, I I should I should send her <laughs> more of book two, but I can't do it because I'm feeling really book one about it, and I want to just hide in a hole and make it perfect rather than actually getting help from professionals so I think I, I'm I'm telling myself that I need to be more you know book two about book two because I have that support but it's just it's really hard it's really mm. hard to just change the way that you write um, even though the structures now that you have to support you are completely different yeah I feel there's an uncertainty I don't know whether this is partly how you feel about sharing work that you know is not perfect and you know right, a lot right. of work because like when you this is maybe how you feel when you did book one you you had the time you had the you were on your own and you had to do your best with it and you weren't showing people until you were sure that it was good enough whereas now right. they're there to do that job for you yeah or to certainly help you support you to do it but I, I certainly am like I can't I can't show them this it's right. just nowhere near good enough yeah 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 it's just it, I think it's just very different for book two but equally I've spoken to some authors who say 
hey, book three has its own challenges, book four has its own challenges. So I think it's just every single book has mm. its own challenges and you mm. just got to to roll with it to some extent, right? <laughs> yes, definitely. So as we're on the topic, finally, can you tell us anything about this next book that you're writing? Yes, uh, book two, um, untitled as yet. Um, but book two is basically a feminist Lolita. So I'm thinking my dark Vanessa meets sorrow and bliss. Um, so we, we kind of know the story of Lolita, a, a young girl seduces an older man. And in the original version, Lolita dies um, at 17. She's pregnant. She dies in a car crash. Um, but there's so much delusion on the part of the protagonist that when I read Lolita, it occurred to me that her death might well be an illusion too and a way of crystallizing her at a particular age. So in in my version, which is obviously set in England, um, the Lolita figure doesn't die. She's actually in her 30s. She's a mother. And for reasons that become clearer as the novel goes on, she leaves her family to basically meet up with this man who's been released from prison and to take him on this road trip of confrontation and revenge. So it basically explores memory and competing narratives in a post-Me Too world and the implications of trauma on identity and motherhood. Wow, that sounds amazing. And okay. uh, I, hope, <laughs> I hope it progresses past chapter six, Ella, because I really want to read it. Thank you so much. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today, Ella. You are so welcome. Anytime. That was Ella King talking about her literary novel, Bad Fruit, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.